Thanks to all of you at home for joining us this hour. It is a rare moment when reasonable people are in agreement with my pillow CEO, Mike Lindell, the prominent election conspiracist. But that is where we are. Kevin McCarthy and the gang uh, released uh, uh, 44,000 hours from January 6th to exclusively Fox News. Well, we're not going to sit back and let that happen. Why of all the fights that we got, why would you pick on going on uh, going uh, going up uh, t- telling McCarthy he can't partner with Tucker? Well, because Fox, number one, Fox is going to sift through it and only put out what they want. You heard that correctly. My pillow CEO and election denier Mike Lindell is furious at Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy for giving exclusive access to more than 40,000 hours of January 6th security footage to Fox News host Tucker Carlson because Mike Lindell is worried that Tucker is going to cherry pick the footage to fit his own narrative. And that is absolutely a huge concern. It's why several national news outlets, including NBC News, it's why they've sued for access to that very footage. But getting the election deniers like Mike Lindell, getting them mad at you is just one worm in the giant can of worms that Speaker McCarthy has opened here. Tucker Carlson having exclusive access to this footage is concerning because we have a pretty good idea about what he might do with it. And it is not great. Carlson has already released a three-part documentary series entitled Patriot Purge that pushed the idea that the January 6th attack was a false flag operation. So if you're wondering at this point, who could possibly worse, who could possibly be worse to give this access to? Well, I mean, probably Mike Lindell, because he is angry at Tucker Carlson because Lindell wants the footage for himself, presumably to push whatever bonkers narrative he thinks is most pressing. Remember, Mike Lindell once claimed he had evidence that would put 300 million people in, quote, prison for life because of imagined election fraud. And now Mike Lindell says he's going to sue Kevin McCarthy for access to the footage, which is, thanks, Kevin McCarthy. Now, after dodging reporters for days, today, Speaker McCarthy finally agreed to answer reporters' questions about, in turn, his questionable decision. Can you explain this decision to hand over these January 6th video to Tucker Carlson? Well, first of all, we didn't hand over anything. Tucker was interested. Well, you've had videos for more than two years. I didn't hear anybody concerned about that when CNN was given exclusive. Um, I know you have letters from all of our news organizations asking for the same video that you've made available to him. Have you ever had an exclusive? Because I see it on your networks all the time. So I have exclusive, then I'll give it out to the entire uh, country. Tucker will have an exclusive, and then the rest of the country will get to see it, said the Speaker of the House of Representatives. What's the big deal there? The number two House Republican Majority Leader Steve Scalise also took questions on this topic today. His take amounted to, well, the January 6th committee released video. On the release of the January 6th tapes, I know that's something that we talked about in today's meeting and yesterday with Speaker McCarthy as well. Is there concern, as much as there's a desire for transparency around this, around security implications of just releasing this footage wholesale? Well, of course, if you watch what the January 6th committee did under Speaker Pelosi, they actually released a lot of video that was very sensitive. I mean, they literally released video of Vice President Pence exiting the Capitol, showing the route that he takes. 
Uh, I didn't hear a lot of concern about that back then. We were concerned how selective they were. But ultimately, Speaker McCarthy has talked about going through and then what gets released is going to obviously be scrutinized. Okay, all of the material shown by the January 6th committee, that was done in consultation with the U.S. Capitol Police. A staffer with direct knowledge of the process told NBC News that the committee worked with a Capitol Police representative to make sure the surveillance footage, if released to the public, would, quote, not compromise their security posture. It remains to be seen what safeguards House Republicans put in place as far as Fox News access. And we now know that they have other plans for what they want to do with it. So far, it doesn't involve Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy. But here is the headline from Kyle Cheney in Politico today. House GOP moving to let January 6th defendants access Capitol security footage. Cheney writes, House Republicans are moving to provide defendants in January 6th related cases access to thousands of hours of internal Capitol security footage, a move that could influence many of the ongoing prosecutions stemming from 2021's violent attack. According to Congressman Barry Loudermilk, the Georgia Republican who chairs the subcommittee with jurisdiction over that material, it is our intention to make available any relevant documents or videos on a case-by-case basis as requested by attorneys representing the January 6th defendants. Which is quite a statement of principles. First Tucker Carlson, then the January 6th defendants, and then maybe you guys. I mean, hey, what could go wrong here? You might remember that last summer, the New York Times did an incredible investigative video piece showing just how instrumental the far-right militia group, the Proud Boys, were in breaching the Capitol on January 6th. It showed that not only were the Proud Boys clearly organized and using predetermined strategies to break through access points to let the crowds into the Capitol, but the Times also showed that hundreds of Proud Boys had met at the Capitol early on the morning of January 6th to do recon and to get a lay of the land. So... Can you imagine what a group like that might do with footage like this? Security footage from every camera in the Capitol. Politico reports today that a lawyer for one of the Proud Boys, who is, by the way, charged with seditious conspiracy for his role in the attack, his lawyer has asked prosecutors to determine whether they will also be able to access this footage. Joining us now is Kyle Cheney, senior legal affairs reporter for Politico, who was the lead byline on today's piece, reporting that House Republicans are going to looking to give January 6th defendants access to Capitol Hill security footage from January 6th. Kyle, thanks for being here. Um, Can you just talk to me a little bit about how feasible Mm -hmm. this plan is? We're talking about by, I think, the current estimation, 44,000 hours of footage. is this a feasible plan to give the, the defendants in the January 6th trials access to this footage? Well, look, the, the January 6th defendants have had access to about 14,000 of these hours for almost a couple of years now. Uh, that's important for their defense. They should have access to footage uh, that's relevant to the riot. And, and what the Capitol Police has said is that is the footage that's relevant to the riot. The other 30,000 hours is basically the rest of the security uh, you know, footage from that entire day, including from locations that may have nothing to do uh, with what happened at the Capitol. Um, so it remains to be seen if there's anything even remotely relevant to January 6th in that footage. Um, but all told, that's four and a half years worth of footage. You could watch that footage end to end for four and a half or more years before you could see it all. So 
once you have it, it's a whole different ballgame to actually go through it and find relevant material. Uh, and so that's why you're seeing a certain push for just having Kevin McCarthy release it all wholesale to the public. So you could kind of crowdsource it, have a whole, you know, thousands of people, you know, at home detectives kind of going through it and trying to find something. But that opens up, as you pointed out, a different can of worms, which is the security risk that that might present. What does the Justice Department think of all of this? Because they're involved in I mean, they're involved in all these January 6 cases. They then would mm-hmm. have to presumably comb through the same footage that is given to the defendants. Right. Right. And they've been uh, relatively silent and they're not they're not sort of brushing this off as a non-issue. You know, when it did come up in the in the Proud Boys matter, the Justice Department attorneys in that case said said we, we're taking this seriously because they have obligations under the law to provide defendants uh, with anything relevant to their cases. Now, they think they've done that. Um, but when there's another 30,000 hours uh, of footage out there that they may not have seen, they don't know what they don't know about it. So I think they're trying to figure out and wrap their heads around what is in this footage and do we have to do anything with it uh, uh, in these cases? Uh, and even if they determine the answer is no, defense attorneys are still going to make a big fuss about trying to access it and see it in ways that could disrupt a lot of the ongoing prosecutions. You mentioned that um, the Capitol Police had sort of vetted the first tranche, 14,000 hours of this footage, and said this is the part that concerns these cases. To what degree are the Capitol Police in consultation with House Republican leadership as they make these decisions that could have dire implications for the security of the Capitol complex? So our, our understanding is they are going to go through a relatively similar process to the January 6th committee in terms of consulting or at least making decisions that are based on protecting the security of the Capitol, that they won't show exit routes for, you know, evacuations or emergencies. They won't show, you know, really that kind of sensitive degree of footage. Uh, they won't allow that to be aired on Fox News or released uh, in other ways. The issue is what's going to happen is if a defense attorney reviewing the footage says, oh, I need that sensitive footage for my trial that's upcoming. Uh, we need to get that out there. Um, when those when those uh, interests compete or conflict, uh, you know, how the House is going to handle that. I think they're still figuring that that particular part out. Well, that would sort of be where the rubber meets the road, right? House Republican leadership would have, on one hand, law enforcement making its case, and then on the other hand, January 6th defendants making their case. Is that right? That's the choice they would have to make? You know, essentially, and, 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 you know, there are ways, you know, again, the 14,000 hours that are out there include some of the sensitive footage. The defendants have access to it. And, you know, a lot of that is not, you can't, they can't just go out and release it all. They're under strict orders by the courts about how they can handle that material. So I assume anything else they would get, uh, you know, from the house would come with similar strings attached. So they can't just go and post it all online for the world to see. I mean, Capitol Police have made clear any wide release of this footage is a grave danger to the Capitol security uh, for exactly what you said. It could help plan an attack, like a future attack against the Capitol. And so uh, I think whatever comes out of the House will be strictly limited in how it can be used. Right now, we're talking about um, Tucker Carlson having access to this, January 6th defendants having access to this. House Republican leadership does not seem to be concerned about the optics of that. When does the rest of the world, for example, media companies that have asked for this footage, do we have any expectation about what the timeline might be for other people getting access to this footage? So so the clearest the clearest answer we got on that was from the speaker himself. He said 
that he actually intends to make this footage as much of it as possible available publicly, widely, not just to media outlets, but to, to the world to go through. Um, and this is kind of what you heard Mike Lindell saying and others saying is rather than have someone cherry pick or, or pick and choose which clips they want to air, let everyone see it where, you know, and McCarthy said, barring that really sensitive stuff, I want it out there as quickly as possible. It's going to take some time to vet. He was asked, is it going to take months? And he said, I hope not. Uh, so I think he, he views it as something a matter of weeks. Maybe he can get the fuller cache of videos uh, published in a way that's that he, in his view is safe. Marching orders from Mike Lindell. I'm just going to leave it right there. Kyle Cheney, thank you for your great reporting. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me. Here with me now is my dear friend and colleague, Jen Psaki, former White House press secretary and host of the upcoming MSNBC show Inside with Jen Psaki. Jen, it's great to see you. My great friend. to see you. What a story. I mean, I Wild. Just, you are a communications person. Mm -hmm. The idea that you're up there defending your release of these fo this footage to Fox News and also arguing about what the January 6th defendants should have access to seems like not a great place to be in in terms of messaging. I mean, just watching that clip of, of Kevin McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, talking to Garrett Hake, an NBC News uh, reporter who was asking him, as he should, what about us? When do we get access to this? And him yeah. saying, haven't I given you exclusives? As if it was who his chief of staff was going to be. Know. You know, this is uh, you give an exclusive. I mean, he the only reason I can think of that he did this, that he would have provided this unfettered access to Tucker Carlson is to get curry favor yeah. with somebody who he he has not had favor with, uh, somebody who has a, an enormous audience with the exact faction of the party that Kevin McCarthy needs to curry favor with. It's also completely perplexing, listening to your interview you just had with Kyle, that it would take him weeks to vet it, so he or months. He, he needs weeks and, vets to, and months to vet it, but he's going to hand it over to C Tucker Carlson, yeah. who is an advocate and a booster of the insurrection. Exactly. I mean, it is just, there's a lot of hypocrisy and, and gaslighting going on here with his argument. And I just think it also reflects upon the Republican Party so poorly that the fact that Republican leadership, now I know everything's become partisan, he's the Speaker of the House and it purportedly represents the American people. And wasn't a booster of the, I mean, he was trying to get Trump not to do this. Let's yes. remember that. He had a moment of sanity and leadership. This is about his own desperate attempt to hold on to power. At all costs. Exactly. Literally just uh, fulfilling his end, I suppose, of the devil's bargain. How should Democrats talk about this? Because the Biden administration is not going to come out and talk about Tucker Carlson's access to these tapes. Right. But in terms of framing up the Republican Party and, you know, who its bedfellows are and, and also the relationship between Fox News, the, the sort of dog leading its owner, uh, to borrow a very ham-handed metaphor, the idea that the, the, that the, caught, the dog has caught the car. Let's use yeah. that one. And that Fox News is basically issuing diktats to the Republican Speaker of the House. I think it's important for Democrats not to get too in the weeds of what's going on here between Kevin McCarthy and Fox News. It's important to keep it focused on what happened on January 6th, yeah. which was there was an insurrection on our Capitol. No matter what political party you belong to or maybe you don't belong to anyone, you should find that outrageous. Uh, and right now there is one party and some from a little few from one party, but most Democrats who are uh, saying that's wrong and that we need to stand up for democracy. We need to get to the bottom of what happened. There's only a handful of Republicans who believe that. So keep it focused on what happened on January 6th, how we have to prevent that from happening again, and who represents standing up for democracy in the country.
country. Are you at all concerned that this all seems like a very concerted effort to reframe what happened on January 6th? Because that's what I mean, yes. that's presumably what Tucker Carlson is, yes. is going to do with 44,000 hours. Of, of course footage. he is. I mean, I can just see his show now where there's so many ways to play it. I'm, we're just giving advice to his producers, I suppose, at this point in time, where it's they could play hours of tape that has nothing on it, because if it's four years of tape, there's hours that nothing happened. Yeah. Right. They can play tape of the, the protesters peacefully, uh, the insurrectionists peacefully walking for a few seconds. There's a lot of ways to frame this. And remember, uh, the, the majority of Republicans still think that Joe Biden wasn't the legitimately yes. elected president. So yes. there is an audience out there for this. That's exactly the kind of thing he could do with it. And I mean, that's <laughs> that's deeply problematic, is Shoot. it not? I mean, the idea that I mean, for now, there, there, as you point out, there is disagreement among Republicans and Democrats largely about what happened in the mid in the 2020 elections, whether or not Joe Biden fairly won, though we know he did. Yes. But January 6th has proved to be a little bit more of a third rail, right? Yes. That that sort of Republicans who still abide by the sort of facts and figures that the rest of the world does don't say that that was, you know, an Antifa fueled no. or 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 the opposite. Don't suggest that it was a benign event. Correct. No, that's true. There is a dividing line there. For and sure. if Carlson, who has a massive audience, is able to muddy the waters, if the other conservatives are able to manipulate the footage in a way that undermines the the gravity of what I mean, you were you were in a transition period yes. for the Biden White House. If they undermine that, I mean, what does that suggest about future transfers of power? What does that suggest about, you know, the, the threshold we have for democracy and the preservation of it? Well, I mean, I think the Trump period of the transfer of power or the lack thereof in that period of time was was so um, it was outrageous, but it was also a uniquely horrible moment in history. Yeah. I mean, I was there when President Obama came in and George Bush was leaving different parties uh, agreement, disagreement on a lot of issues, including the Iraq war, which was the biggest issue, almost the biggest issue at the time. Mm -hmm. They treated us with grace. They provided us briefing materials. Uh, they worked together to deal with the financial crisis. That is normal. And that's what it's supposed to be. So this, to your point, Alex, is throwing into disarray what actually should happen with the continuity of power in the country and and adding more fuel to the fire of people in this country who don't believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected, who believe a lot of these conspiracy theories, which, frankly, Tucker Carlson and others are guilty of pushing, even when we know, as of this last week, yes. they don't believe all oh, of them. Oh, yes. The hypocrisy, the peddling of lies, the destruction of democracy. Exactly. Full stop. And we will leave it there. I know that you're going to be talking about all of this mm -hmm. and so, so much more on your upcoming MSNBC yes. show, Inside with I Jen don't Psaki. think we're resolving democracy in the next few You weeks. might. If anyone can, you can, sister. May it not be a topic. I'll be watching. Thank you for coming and Thank visiting you, me Alex. on the set. We have lots of stories to bring you tonight, like new revelations from a lawsuit against, yes, you guessed it, Fox News, over its coverage of that big lie, including one involving Rupert Murdoch and Jared Kushner. Plus, what huge crowds of protesters at the Supreme Court today have in common with Justice Clarence Thomas. We'll tell you about it coming up next. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, 
My guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments today in two blockbuster cases challenging Biden's student loan forgiveness plan as hundreds of protesters gathered outside the building, calling on the court to let the White House cancel their debt. Some waited outside the building overnight. Some stood in the rain, all to make sure their calls for relief were heard. One of the protest leaders said she was there because she wanted to make sure that the justices look into the eyes of borrowers. But the justices didn't have to look outside of the courtroom today to look into the eyes of a borrower. They could have turned to someone on the bench. Justice Clarence Thomas was once suffering from what he called the crushing weight of student loans. In his 2007 memoir, Thomas wrote that law school classmates suggested he declare bankruptcy after graduating because of the staggering burden of his student loans. When he was nominated to the federal bench in 1989, Thomas still had $10,000 of student loans to pay off. $10,000, which is exactly the amount of debt that Biden's plan would forgive for non-Pell Grant recipients. Now, we have no idea where Justice Thomas will ultimately stand on student debt forgiveness, but his comments today sounded pretty skeptical of the Biden plan, and he was not alone in that apparent skepticism. Justice Neil Gorsuch was fixated on the idea of fairness, whether the Biden plan was fair. What I think they argue— that is missing is the is costs to other persons in terms of fairness. For example, people who have paid their loans, people who plan their lives around not seeking loans, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place. And that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others. One group of favored persons over others. If you help one group, you are somehow harming the others. That seems to be the argument. Here's the thing. It is true that studies show Biden's plan would give 74 percent of the total forgiveness funds to households with annual incomes below $82,000. Maybe those are the favored persons Justice Gorsuch is talking about. Those families are in the bottom 60 percent of wage earners. But it is also true that the cost of college has been on the rise for decades now for everyone. And average earnings for young adults in their 20s have failed dramatically to keep up. It is also true that United States, the United States total student debt has been rising for decades and currently tops $1.7 trillion. At this rate, experts expect it to pass $3 trillion by 2035, which is just a massive volume of national debt and is something that impacts the entire country. And Biden administration officials have been warning that some of the reasons they launched this debt forgiveness plan was to address the growing debt crisis and to reduce the likelihood that about 18 million borrowers at risk of defaulting on their loans to reduce the chance that those borrowers actually fail to make their payments. Because what would a default of that scale mean for the American economy, for all of us? 
whether we have student loans or not. I know exactly the person I should ask. Joining us now is Heather McGee, my friend, an expert in economic and social policy and author of The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together, a new adaptation for young readers. Oh, my, my. was just released last week. Heather, my friend, this gets to the core of the thesis you so brilliantly and urgently articulate in the book, which is notion of zero-sum politics, right? Let's first debunk that in the case of student loans, right? You have a lot of debt that's being amassed that is not a stabilizing force in the American economy. Why do we keep looking at these things through the lens of us versus them? You know, this is a very right-wing way of looking at the world. You saw the conservative justices say, um, you know, what about the small business owner with a lawn care business who didn't get, who took out a, um, a small business loan? Why is that not uh, available for uh, student loan debt can- for cancellation? Now, mind you, of course, that could be eligible for bankruptcy, for PPP loans, like all these other things. But just the very idea that thankfully most of Americans reject, that we somehow don't live in an interrelated society, right? If you're a lawn care business owner, don't you actually want people to have enough Lawns. money to buy homes, <laughs> yes. right? And we know that there's a direct correlation between the amount of debt a family takes on and their inability to purchase a home, right? We've seen starter homes among young Americans be falling and falling and falling, partly because of this student loan debt burden. If you have student loan debt, you are less likely to save for retirement, to start a business. You often put aside marriage, right? This is no way to run a country. And the supermajority of the country agrees. 62%, according to the data I just saw, of the of voters actually think that this is a good idea. This zero-sum story that says, um, you know, resent what your neighbor has. Um, a, it's very racialized, right? We saw the images of who was organized in front of the, the courthouse steps, right? Most... Um, there's a disproportionate amount of black and brown borrowers, mm-hmm. um, which absolutely just has to do with the racial wealth gap, with explicitly racist policy that stopped an intergenerational wealth transfer for most of the 20th century, to the point where today the average black college graduate has less wealth, Alex, than the average white high school dropout. Yeah. Right. So this is one of those things we're saying to, you know, the brightest generation, the most diverse generation in American history, do all the things we've been telling you to do and just do it with twenty, thirty thousand dollars in Can we bring that graph back up, the one that shows the earnings of those in their twenties and the debt that's amassing? It's just a shocking that's it. Back when Clarence Thomas was getting crushed under that student debt, that yep. was the 80s. That's right. Look at the look at the gap there and look at it now. I mean, that is staggering. You can't run a country like that. You can't expect people to ever get out from behind that. And by the way, we used to help people. This That's is right. a really important point that you bring up in this book that is, did I mention, out in the young adult uh, uh, version <laughs> now? Here's an excerpt. Public commitment to college for all was a crucial part of the white social contract for much of the 20th century. In 1976, state governments provided six out of every $10 of the cost of students attending public colleges. Six out of 10. When the public meant white, public colleges thrived. That is no longer the case. Over this period of growth among students of color, ensuring college affordability fell out of favor with lawmakers. Hmm. When it was white people going to college, the government would share the burden. When it became people of color going to college, the government sounds less interested in sharing that burden. 
That's exactly what's at the root of this problem. I call it drained pool politics, the idea that we had these flourishing public goods that created the American middle class, but they were largely for whites only. And then in the wake of the civil rights movement, you began to see this sort of repeal of all of that social contract, a draining of the integrated pools, literally in terms of swimming pools, but also figuratively in terms of the other kinds of public goods like free college, which, frankly, most of the members of Congress... Right. Actually, you know, we did this study at at Demos where we looked at the members of Congress. They were paying hundreds of dollars in tuition. And now, of course, it's tens of thousands of dollars a year in tuition at the same schools. And that's because we have not kept up the promise that having an educated citizenry is important to our economy. It helped to create the American century and all the research and innovation that we just sort of take for granted as part of the American birthright, as we're falling behind in global competitiveness because our young people are saddled with debt, where our peer economies are looking at what we did in the 50s and replicating it for their <laughs> They're young like, people. we'll take America, yeah. but 70 years ago. Exactly. I just, how do we bridge this? Because on one hand, you have the us versus them narrative, which is very prevalent and powerful in Republican politics, and the anti-elite narrative, which is you don't need no college degree. You don't need to go to those elite institutions, right? I mean, how do you, I mean, I know that your, 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 your stats say 62% of the country, but the, the, there is a sharp partisan divide on this. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's any way of bringing back some part of the GOP that understands the importance of education and understands crushing debt. I think it is. This is the thing. There's um, a lot of like play acting around populism on this issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Ron DeSantis, you know, he went to Yale, right? And he's and saying, Harvard. Ed education for me and not for thee, right? Um, but fundamentally, most working class families, if you ask them, do you want your kid to go to college? They will say yes, yes. Right. Because that is a core part of the American dream. And we have so many jobs that are working class jobs today that have some college, including community college, which used to be free and which the Biden administration would like to be free and is not today. And people go to debt and get go to community college and get tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And so I do think this is not a sort of plain and simple college educated versus not issue. Um, the average uh, income of where the majority of student loan yeah. debt applicants, you know, relief applicants were, you know, is like less than $50,000 a year, right? We are talking about working class communities that, of course, if you just think about it for just a second, had to borrow to go to college because they didn't have a trust fund yeah. and intergenerational wealth to rely on. And so that's who's hurting the most. And this, the American government needs to invest in its future. Oh, American government. Read this book, American <laughs> government, The Sum of Us. My friend, Heather McGee, thank you for your time. The book is out in YA versions now, right. so your children can read it before they go to college. We have more for you tonight, including more tidbits from a lawsuit against Fox News purporting to show that skepticism about Trump's big lie went all the way to the top, despite whatever Fox was putting on its own air. Plus, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is offering a blueprint to turn the rest of the country into Florida. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation, 
That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops, on. TVs, streaming. Game console, consoling. Smart thermostat, set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera, oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go, you are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet, Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film, The Aviators, now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply, actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Here is how Rupert Murdoch, the head of News Corporation, which is Fox News' parent company, here's how he described President Trump's election conspiracies just a few days after the 2020 election. And I quote, BS and damaging. Murdoch went on to say that some Fox News hosts didn't just give airtime to Trump's election fraud conspiracies, they endorsed them. That is all according to newly unsealed court documents in the ongoing $1.6 billion Dominion Voting Systems defamation lawsuit against Fox News. After already learning that in private, Fox News hosts called the election fraud claims total BS, we now have evidence that that belief was also held at the very top of the media empire. And a once invincible media mogul is now finding himself and his empire under assault after a series of bombshell revelations courtesy of this ongoing litigation. This latest filing shows us the unprecedented and unusually cozy relationship between Fox News and the GOP. For starters, we learned that during Trump's campaign, Murdoch provided Jared Kushner with confidential information about Joe Biden's ads and debate strategy before those Biden ads were to become public. That coziness extended well beyond the former president's inner circle. There was also Murdoch's relationship to top Republicans in Congress. Murdoch testified he called then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell immediately after the election and told investigators that it was, quote, probably true that he, quote, urged the Republican leader to ask other senior Republicans to refuse to endorse Mr. Trump's conspiracy theories and baseless claims of fraud. While Mr. Murdoch was in close contact with the highest levels of the GOP, he also privately did not want to, quote, antagonize Donald Trump. And then the media mogul ran into a big problem. The court filing details how, following Trump's election loss, the head of Fox News' brand protection unit, he told Fox executives that the network was, quote, underwater, with viewership declining. Rupert's son, Fox Corporation Executive Chairman Lachlan Murdoch, testified that the drop in viewership would, quote, keep him awake at night. Confronted with polling showing Fox's drop in favorability, executives were warned that, quote, clear and decisive action was needed to regain the trust that they were losing with their core audience. And so while Fox News chief himself believed Trump's claims of election fraud were total BS, the network continued to allow consp election conspiracy theorists to spread disinformation all over its air. According to Dominion's filing, that was motivated in large part by profit. This is NBC News with the summary. Murdoch asked why he continued to allow MyPillow CEO Mike Lindell to make election fraud claims on Fox News, said it was a business decision. It is not red or blue. It is green, Murdoch said, according to the court documents. Fox News has said the lawsuit is baseless and is an all-out assault on the First Amendment. There is still more to come tonight, including a trip 
to DeSantis world, which, if Governor Ron DeSantis gets his way, may just be expanding well beyond Florida. That's next. It is a big day for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. His new book, The Courage to be Free, Florida's Blueprint for America's Revival, out today, has become a top seller on Amazon. As its title suggests, this book is a sort of how-to guide in the culture wars that DeSantis has cultivated in the Sunshine State, with chapters titled Laboratories of Democracy, the COVID-19 Pandemic, and The Magic Kingdom of Woke Corporatism. It is also seen as the governor's literary nod toward a 2024 presidential run. But this morning, Governor DeSantis played coy about any higher ambitions while on Fox and Friends to promote his book. I have a big legislative session coming up. I made promises to the folks about what I would deliver, and we're going to deliver a lot of wins over the next few months. And Florida Republican lawmakers are not wasting any time getting started. They have filed a bill today that would expand on the so-called don't say gay bill. It would restrict the use of pronouns in schools by requiring them to match the assigned identity of the person being described. They have also filed a bill that would eliminate the state's Democratic Party by directing the Florida Division of Elections to immediately cancel the filings of a political party to include its registration and approved status as a political party if the party's platform has previously advocated for or been in support of slavery or involuntary servitude. And that is because Southern Democrats, of course, advocated for and defended slavery during the Civil War. It's not exactly clear that these specific bills are backed by Governor DeSantis, but at least some Florida Republicans seem to think that in the current atmosphere, it's worth putting their names on them. And they come as the impact of other DeSantis actions are beginning to take effect. This was the campus in a new college in Sarasota, Florida, earlier today, before a board of trustees meeting. Students gathered in protest over the six new conservative members who were appointed by Governor DeSantis earlier this year. Hours after that protest, the board voted to abolish the school's diversity, equity and inclusion office and to end its mandatory diversity training program. Just yesterday, Governor DeSantis capped off his plan to punish Disney World for speaking out about his dotse gay bill by signing a bill into law that revokes Disney World's self-governing status. It allows DeSantis to appoint his political donors, including the co-founder of the conservative group Moms for Liberty. He can appoint them now to a five-member board that will be responsible for the government services that district provides in its theme parks. The board will oversee infrastructure projects like road maintenance and sewage treatment, which all sounds, you know, fairly normal. But The Washington Post notes that Governor DeSantis has another use in mind for this board. DeSantis suggested Monday that he is also expecting the board to act as a sort of moral arbiter for the company DeSantis has described as a woke Burbank corporation that is trying to inject woke ideology on children. Disney World. Joining us now is Florida State Representative Anna Eskimani. Uh, Representative Eskimani, thanks for joining us. I know you've been very involved in all of this uh, or at least the pushback on a lot of it. Let's just first start with with Disney and the degree to which you think the governor is trying to weaponize state oversight to effectively cancel Disney culture, as it were. 
Well, thanks so much for having me, Alex. And so much of what Governor DeSantis does is fake populism. You know, as he talks about ending the corporate kingdom, he's been giving out billions of dollars in tax breaks to some of the state's largest corporations, Walt Disney World included. He's done nothing to close corporate tax loopholes. In fact, I have filed legislation to do just that. And at this point, Republicans have not committed to give me one hearing. In the case of Reedy Creek, I mean, the governor's... uh, ability to appoint all five members. And as you noted, feeding into extremism while also crony capitalism just highlights that he really isn't a guy that's tough on corporate actors. He actually just wields culture wars to his favor while continuing giving corporations the tax breaks that really they care the most about. I mean, can I just say, and this seems like a detail, but I think it's important. The governor was married at Disneyland, right? The, the the mouse looms large in the state of Florida. And I got I got to ask you as a Floridian, I know that he's he's sort of ca- framing this as as a man versus a corporate me- megalith. But Disney's pretty popular in the state of Florida, isn't it? I mean, how does this play with residents of the state that he's the governor of? Oh, absolutely. It is not something that locals approve. In fact, when you talk to Disney workers, overwhelmingly, uh, they're concerned about the new five-person board, especially knowing just the extremism of some of the members. I mean, the new chairman is a mega donor to DeSantis. He's given him $50,000 just a year ago. And so you talk to everyday workers, you know, they want to love who they want to love. They want Disney to continue to support issues pertaining to equality. And the only reason why Disney even spoke out in support of LGBTQ plus kids was because their cast members demanded that they do so overwhelmingly. So, you know, his behavior might appeal to a conservative base as he tries to out-Trump Trump, but it certainly does not appeal to the majority of Floridians who might not always vote in every election, but do see the cost of rent going up, cost of property insurance going up, and they see DeSantis attacking Disney, just a complete lack of prioritization and desire to create chaos instead of calm. I got to say, there's a I was in Florida this weekend uh, visiting the campus of New College. We'll have more on that later. There's a ton of fear about what could happen to that institution and other institutions around the country if the governor is successful in his efforts to effectively overhaul uh, the curriculum, the teaching staff and the student body. Is he going to be successful? How much power do you think he can have? I know there's other legislation that could give him even more power in terms of advancing his ends. Well, you got it, Alex. And thank you for coming to Florida and coming to New College, because though New College is a small college, it is mighty. And students, alumni, faculty are fighting back and really serving as the canary in the coal mine, because what happens at New College can happen to any one of our state universities. And if DeSantis were to become president of this country, will happen to universities and colleges across Florida. And what I stressed at the rally today at New College and what I've stressed before to all of my students in state universities and colleges is that every culture war is a class war. And what DeSantis really is doing is degrading public education so that those of us like myself, who grew up as a working class kid of immigrants. My mom passed away when I was 13 years old. If it wasn't for public education, I want to be here with you right now. And so by degrading public education, you're basically creating a generation of young people who won't have efficacy, who won't have free thought, and will allow the status quo to remain the same, which is his end goal, which is why we have to fight back regardless of how difficult the battle is. Former Florida, not former, current Florida State Representative Anna Escamani in the trenches. Education is the ladder to mobility. Thank you for your time so much. Really appreciate it.
That is the show for tonight. We will see you again tomorrow.